electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. And here's what's ahead. It's going to be a busy couple of hours. The president is expected to lay out his plans to go after China. The White House is holding a news conference at 2 p.m. Markets are waiting to see if we'll pull out of the trade deal or maybe slap on new tariffs. Could sanctions be coming? We'll explore all of that. Plus, Senator Ted Cruz is joining the president and others amping up their fight against Twitter. And the stock is down again today. Is Jack Dorsey going to regret policing political speech? And your boss desperately wants to know what you're doing this weekend because of COVID-19. We'll get into that on Rapid Fire, which is back today. Uh, but first, Dom Chu is here with the numbers. Dom. Well, our bosses know exactly what we're doing right now. Socially distant, Kelly, and we are looking at the markets right now because we have seen at least a little bit of positive momentum emerge in some of the parts of the market. The Dow Industrial is only off about 212, so not near its worst levels of the day yet, but we're seeing what how how that plays out. The S&P 500 is still hanging above that 3,000 mark. You can see there the Nasdaq composite also in the green for right now. With regard to the S&P 500, large caps versus small caps in the Russell 2000, that gap is still pretty big, but we're watching to see if it narrows just a little bit. Small caps still a lagging trade right now. And take a look at what's happening with the consumer. Haves and have-nots. Nordstrom have-not down 11% right now after a disappointing earnings report. That consumer picture a little bit bleaker with today's personal income and spending numbers and and by the way, Lululemon, an upside standout, driven in part by an analyst call, at least touting some of the benefits to Lululemon's business model. So, again, the consumer very much in focus, haves and have-nots. I'll send things back over to you, Kel. All right, Domin, we'll see you soon. Thank you, sir. Now, stocks are falling on the last trading day of May, but they had a nice run this month. The Nasdaq up nearly 6%. Energy is the only sector lower, and that's just barely for the month. And the Dow is on track for its best weekly gain in seven. Just as the markets are finding their footing, investors have to deal with a new worry, China. Joining me now are Nancy Tangler, the chief investment officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. And Brian Railing is head of global fixed income strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Good, uh, good to have you both here. Nancy, is China becoming a front burner issue for you? Is it changing any of your thoughts about investments? Well, it's definitely going to be on, on investors' minds, Kelly, as, as we kind of come out of earnings season and that headline risk is gone or that headline catalyst. So depending on the company, right? So, so I think that uh, we're certainly watching it. I think it will move the market. Uh, uh, the I don't know if you've had the chance to read the, the White House report on China. It's pretty specific. It's pretty pointed. So I expect things to get worse before they get better. And we've kept our hedge in place because we think the summer is going to be pretty choppy. OK, Brian, do you have any expectations about this 2 p.m. announcement or what would you be telling investors about the way to think through this risk now? Um, well, I mean, from a fixed income perspective, not overly concerned uh, with the 2 p.m. announcement. I mean, we've seen this rhetoric before uh, from the president. Yes, it's uh, uh, market moving uh, in the short term, but really kind of focused on the long term, uh, the eventual economic recovery here. And what I expect to be a very low rate environment for the foreseeable future really drives our recommendations. How would you kind of bring those two thoughts together, Brian? If we're going to have a recovery, why are rates going to stay so abnormal? Not, I mean, it is abnormally low, except it's becoming normal now. 
<laughs> yeah, well, there's a couple. There's a couple reasons. One, uh, the Fed's mandate of full employment, uh, even in a recovery, is going to take uh, a long time uh, before we see the levels that we saw pre-coronavirus. Uh, and two, I think there is a tremendous amount of uh, liquidity uh, in the markets. Uh, continue. Uh, to be so, perhaps more in the future. And this uh, is, of course, going to raise all asset prices, I think, uh, including fixed income. And that, that, to me, keeps rates low. And I just don't see any real risk of uh, inflation here over the, the near to intermediate term. Yeah, even, Nancy, the food, you know, food inflation is obviously there. We saw it in the Consumer Sentiment Survey this morning. Um, but boosted consumer inflation expectations, even though it's not likely to move the price level up overall. I was curious if there's anything about what Jay Powell said this morning that caught your attention, or if it's simply the reassurance that, as Brian alluded to, you know, the Fed is in this marketplace and will be for some time. Yeah. So unfortunately, Kelly, I was on a call at that time and I didn't I didn't even get to read the headlines very effectively. But it seemed to me like uh, he was just basically saying we're going to continue to be available. We're going to stay in our lane, although I, I think you could argue they've they've emerged out of their lane to or some their extent. their lane has widened considerably. Yeah. <laughs> Better, even better way to characterize it. So, I, I, you know, and, and look, money supply growth is up 23 percent year to date. Um, that's why I think many of the, the pullbacks have been shallow, because there's a lot of money on the sidelines uh, with nowhere to go. So I think the Fed has already done their job and now they're in the mode of reassuring and, uh, you know, and b- bringing calm to the markets. You have some specific picks uh, I should mention here. A couple of them have been among the best performers. I'm curious if you feel comfortable hanging on to the likes of Home Depot and Target and Chipotle. Um, you know, again, when they're the clear winners, is, is that the problem? Is that everybody kind of knows that already? Well, it, it certainly can be, but we're pretty, and, and so consequently, we've been trimming back on Walmart, which has also been a winner, uh, and putting those proceeds into Target. Home Depot is in the sweet spot. We think housing is going to con- continue to surprise to the upside. It's got supply on its side, low interest rates and demographics, and, and then some of the COVID uh, expectations that people want to move to the suburbs. So we still like Home Depot. We did sell some yesterday uh, just because it got to be such an outsized position. Chipotle will wait for pullbacks, but I love the story. I love the food. And then Target, I just think, is a great, um, a great place to, to be from a consumer discretionary standpoint as people re-engage in the stores and, you know, spend on the, the higher margin uh, products and goods. Yeah, and you have a couple tech names, uh, especially cybersecurity, Cloud, Palo Alto, Splunk, Raytheon, uh, AbbVie and J&J, and healthcare, uh, for, as you say, obvious reasons, um, all of those kind of building off some of the key themes right now. So, Brian, let me turn to you. Um, One of the questions on people's minds is not so much are interest rates going to go up or not. Everyone seems convinced that they won't in any dramatic way. But is the yield curve going to steepen? And and do you have any thoughts on that prospect? Um, Well, obviously, uh, the yield curve kind of nailed it again last summer when it was uh, inverted well before COVID, uh, amazingly enough. Now, we have seen it, um, of course, uh, go back into kind of positive slope here. Um, we do expect a little bit of yield curve steepening, but nothing dramatic. Um, I think it would be very uh, a very good sign for the economy if we saw a little bit more dramatic yield curve steepening. But I just don't think that's uh, in the cards here. It is weird that the yield curve inverted and we got a pandemic, Brian. I mean, it's strange. <laughs> you know, it should keep people up at night. Like, were, were, did, were we headed for some sort of economic event anyway? Was the you know was did we need a huge Fed response? And this was just the way that we got it. I mean, it gets metaphysical. Uh, yes, it was. It was strange, um, eerie, in a matter of fact. 
Yeah, uh, eerie. Uh, all right, I'll leave it at that. I'm going barking <laughs> up the wrong tree. Uh, Brian Railing and Nancy Tangler, great to talk to you both this afternoon. We appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. We'll check back in with you soon. Uh, in the meantime, we mentioned China. Let's get out to Kayla Tausche, who's got the latest on what we might expect with tensions growing and the president holding a news conference at 2 p.m. They haven't said, Kayla, it's specifically about China, uh, but that's the wide expectation. Well, President Trump yesterday said that there would be a press conference today about China. And when just moments ago that 2 p.m. Rose Garden appearance was added to the calendar, uh, the expectations are that this is a place for the president uh, to escalate geopolitical tensions with China just a few months after signing that much heralded phase one trade deal. Of course, a lot has happened in those intervening months. And just this week, the president's top economic advisors and uh, foreign affairs advisors uh, presented him a menu of options, possible policy actions to take with regard to China. In addition to signing a bill that was passed by both the House and the Senate imposing sanctions for China's treatment of Muslim minorities, other things that are under consideration are possible sanctions and asset freezes and visa revocations for top Chinese officials in response to that Hong Kong Kong national security law, a review of Hong Kong's special economic status that could result in tariffs down the road, and then a possible revocation of visas for Chinese students and researchers here in the U.S. that are found to have ties to the People's Liberation Army in China. It remains unclear what exactly the president has decided and will announce this afternoon, but certainly anything on that list would represent a pretty dramatic shift in relations between the U.S. and China compared to where we were just a few months ago. White House has so far been mum on exactly what is in the works. Here's NEC Director Larry Kudlow asked earlier today by a reporter what the White House was planning to announce and whether there would even be a press conference today. I believe so. I'm not going to front run it, but yes, I believe the president will have a lot of comments on China. Uh, China's been um, a very bad actor, as you know. We've talked a lot about that. And when point, Kelly, that every single source I speak with agrees on, and that is that there will be a considerable ramping up of rhetoric against China going into the election, even if some of these economic actions are shelved until after that fact. Kelly. All right. Kayla, thank you very much. Talking more about this now, I'm joined by Nicholas Lardy, the Anthony M. Solomon Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's also a longtime China watcher. Nicholas, it's good to have you here. What is your expectation about possible announcements or moves that the U.S. might make in response here? Well, I think the main possibility is a revocation of Hong Kong's uh, trading status uh, in the United States. That's certainly one of the major uh, areas where he could react in response to the security law that China is going to introduce in Hong Kong. And what would the effect of that be, you think? I think it would be teeny to non-existent. Uh, We Hmm. buy almost nothing from Hong Kong that is made in Hong Kong. Most of what Hong Kong exports to us comes from China and Vietnam, Southeast Asian countries. And those goods are subject to the tariffs that apply to goods originating in those countries. So Chinese goods come through Hong Kong, they're already subject to the high tariffs that apply if they're shipped directly from China. Uh, Hong Kong goods shipped to the United States are, last year, were about $475 million, which is, in trade terms, approximately zero. So putting tariffs on that wouldn't have much effect on the Hong Kong economy. 
I guess the bigger question is about Hong Kong as a global financial center. And again, I'm not sure it's an interest many Americans need to be bothered about. Maybe some financial firms. There are tens of thousands of Americans who live in Hong Kong. Um, is it more about trying to undermine Hong Kong as a source of prosperity for the Chinese as it becomes more a part of China? Well, that may be part of the president's thinking or Secretary Pompeo's thinking, but I think, quite frankly, it's mistaken. China does not rely very much anymore about funds raised in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was extremely important uh, 20, 10 years ago, but today not so much. They have a domestic stock market that's huge uh, where, they, where their companies can raise money. Some of them prefer to go to Hong Kong, but even if Hong Kong's role as a financial center was eroded, it would not have a significant effect on the Chinese economy. And keep in mind, the demise of Hong Kong as a financial center has been forecast over and over again, uh, starting in 1997, and it's remained a very vibrant uh, financial center. It, has, it, it is a complex ecosystem that supports that. They not only have the financial firms, they have the legal firms, the accounting firms, the credit rating agencies that are all operating in Hong Kong. So this infrastructure, if you will, this ecosystem, uh, will not go away uh, overnight, uh, even if the Secretary of State declares that Hong Kong is no longer uh, an autonomous area. Fair enough. So I'm curious what you think about some of the other moves that are potentially uh, under evaluation here, including revoking Chinese student visas, sanctions. Uh, sanctions are one of the things that does keep coming up time and again. Um, sort of philosophically, do you think these are tools that ought to be used? I mean, do you think that China's behavior with Hong Kong here ought to be responded to by the U.S.? And if so, uh, which tool would be most effective? Uh, or maybe you don't think it, it, needs, it merits a U.S. response? Oh, I think it does merit a U.S. response. I think we are vitally concerned about the future of Hong Kong, and we should be doing everything possible to maintain the status that China promised at the time of the handover back in 1997. I think the main way we can do that is to cooperate with our allies and present a united front against China. It's basically what we call name and shame. Uh, China frequently responds to a coordinated international uh, criticism. Uh, they rarely, if ever, respond to unilateral pressure from the United States. Uh, and what we've seen in Europe, the Europeans aren't really willing to do anything about the developments in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. They may and say it's unfortunate, but they're certainly not thinking of imposing any sanctions. And I don't think the administration made any effort to reach out to potential allies in Europe, particularly the UK or uh, countries in Asia that are much closer to this. So I think we've missed an opportunity. We responded immediately without coordination. And it's important to keep in mind, this law hasn't even been drafted yet. We don't even know what's for sure in it. It won't be passed by uh, the Chinese legislative authority for another couple of months. Uh, so maybe we should have waited to see what was in the law and tried to mobilize some international uh, criticism if, if it was warranted, which undoubtedly it would be. Yeah, interesting, although the protesters aren't waiting, uh, that's for sure. But still, some good backdrop to think about the announcement this afternoon. Uh, Nicholas Lardy, thanks so much.
with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Coming up here as we hit the heart of the home buying season, there's not a lot of homes for sale. We're going to look at the epic shortage we're seeing and the impact on prices. Plus, not all big box stores are created equal. Target and Walmart blew past expectations for the quarter, but Costco came up short. We're going to dig into why. And Twitter's battle with the president and the White House is intensifying by the hour. We've got the very latest after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. If you're in the market to buy a home and your searches are coming up empty, it's because the pandemic has led to an epic supply shortage. For a closer look at how we got here and what it means for home prices and the whole market in the future, let's check in with Diana Olick. She's live in Washington this afternoon. Diana. Kelly, we were in a pretty severe housing shortage even before all this happened. And then when the economy shut down, not only did sellers pull their listings, but those about to list in the usually busiest spring market put that off. So take a look at supply. It basically fell off a cliff in April. And now new listings are still down 20 percent annually and total listings are down 22 percent. That according to Realtor.com. And the builders were clearly unprepared for this quick recovery in demand. Single family housing starts and permits plunged in March and April. And with labor and supply issues now, it will be very hard to ramp it up fast. Now, even before COVID, the market was short about 350,000 homes per year in light of household formation, according to the Urban Institute. This is going to make the market increasingly expensive, especially at the entry level, where demand is, of course, the strongest. Kelly. And why the shortage going into this? Is that still a legacy of the kind of housing bubble and, and crash? Well, it was a legacy of the subprime mortgage crisis. You had nearly 9 million homes go into foreclosure, and of those, 5 million were purchased by investors who turned them into single-family rentals, and that's a very lucrative market. People thought they would sell them off. They did not. So that's 5 million homes that used to be for sale now as rentals. Interesting. Maybe they should give them the rent-to-buy option uh, if that's the way it's going these days. Diana, thanks very much. Diana Olick with the status there. Housing has been a rare source of strength. New home sales rose nearly 1% this week, defying expectations of a massive drop. Home purchase apps are up 54% month on month despite the pandemic. But as Diana pointed out, there are critical pressure points to watch in the market going forward. Let's bring in Tim Myopoulos. He's the former Fannie Mae CEO and the current president of Blend, which is a startup digitizing commercial banking. Tim, it's good to have you back. And I am curious what you make of just the, the su- kind of surprising strength in the housing market right now? Well, it's good to be back with you. Thank you. Um, this has been a pretty remarkable story. Um, obviously, you know, going from March into April, we saw this dramatic increase in unemployment spike, unlike anything we'd seen since the Great Depression. The number of people asking to uh, stop making payments on their on their mortgage loans, being forbearance, you know, climbed to over 8%. That number was less than 1% in March. And then, as uh, Diana was noting, that the, the number of 
participants in the market, the number of listings in the market had fallen back significantly. But there's some really good signs of a rapid recovery here. Obviously, low rates have kept refinance activity very high at roughly you know, two times what it was last year. And purchase activity is really starting to rebound. We see more sellers putting their properties on the market, more buyers coming out to buy. And certainly the, the data I'm looking at, including data we have at Blend, shows that purchase apps uh, really fell off uh, quite significantly from March into April, maybe down 30 percent. Uh, but by earlier this month, they were back up where they were in March, and now they're another 20, 25 percent higher than that. So yeah. it looks like people are coming back to the market. I can tell you people in the suburbs of uh, New York City, are, whether it's New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, I mean, they are getting inundated uh, with people who are looking for homes to purchase and, and who want to do so quickly. I'm curious about another uh, aspect of the mortgage market that's been a big headline and a big source of concern, mortgage forbearance, which, of course, is meant to help people throughout the pandemic. And there was big demand immediately, um, which threw the mortgage market itself into some disarray. I think they're still kind of trying to figure that out. But it's really slowed down lately. Um, it's slowed down substantially. I, I suppose we have to take that as a good sign. I guess I just wonder, after this program is up, what happens if people run into trouble later in the year, next year, and so forth? Um, would they do anything like trying to bring it back? Or is this just kind of a one-time thing and we hope that maybe that was the worst of it? Well, it is somewhat encouraging to see the, the number of new requests coming in slowing down. So hopefully that means that people are feeling more stable about their employment situation. But I can tell you that lenders, certainly the lenders that we work with at Blend, they are preparing for a potential wave of, of potential delinquencies. And so they're getting ready to modify loans uh, if they need to and really trying to streamline that process, use some of the lessons that we learned through the last crisis to get people back to, to rates and terms that they can actually afford to pay. So I think we'll see a wave of that loan modification activity coming at us in the coming months. Well, and it was interesting how Diana said the, the wave of foreclosures after the last crisis. You had some investors coming into the market. Now a lot of those homes are rental uh, properties and people are looking more for homes to purchase. So do you think we could avoid a, another round of that this time around, avoid a round of foreclosures, you know, avoid losing more of the housing supply to rentals and so forth? I think we learned a lot of lessons through the last crisis. And so there was a lot of trial and error at the beginning of the last crisis to try to figure out what would work. I think uh, you know, policymakers have determined that. I think uh, companies like Fannie and Freddie have learned a lot of lessons from that. So I'm not saying there won't be any foreclosures. Uh, that's certainly a risk. But I think the mechanisms to avoid that are, are well established now and can be implemented relatively quickly and relatively uh, swiftly. Interesting. Well, that's certainly a, a place to watch. Tim, thanks so much. It's good to check in with you. Thank you. Tim Mappolis, the former CEO of Fannie Mae and the president of Blend. Coming up, traditional sports leagues may be shut down, but esports are in full swing. And that's great news for the jobs market. We'll look at the explosive growth in hiring there. Plus, while tech has taken the lead this year in the market, there are two sectors that are closing the gap, and now could be the best time to get in. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Sue? Thank you very much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Amid nationwide protests over the death of George Floyd in police custody, Minnesota authorities announced just minutes ago that the officer seen with his knee on Floyd's neck, Derek Chauvin, has been arrested. Also a short time ago, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says New York City is on track to start the first phase of reopening on June 8th. Tyson is temporarily shutting down its pork plant in Storm Lake, Iowa, after more than 500 employees who have been diagnosed with the coronavirus. And protests continuing to, hop, uh, to pop up, I should say, at Hong Kong shopping centers just one day after China moved to impose a national security law that would increase control over the region. Lots of moving parts at this hour. Kelly, we're back in another hour. Of course, depending on the president's news conference, I'll send it back to you. Exactly. We expect that around 2 p.m. Sue, thanks very much, Sue Herrera. Let's catch you up on a few other stories that should be on your radar today. Rapid Fire is back in a social distanced way. Uh, here to break down the headlines are Dom Chu, <laughs> Courtney Reagan and Eric Chemi, uh, whom I'll chat with from across the room. Welcome, all of you. Love the new background, Courtney. Uh, great to have you here. So let's thanks, start, Dom. guys, with a little Costco. And Dom, I'm coming to you first on this because I kind of consider you the expert. Uh, mixed quarter. Tale of two months. March shoppers were flocking to the store. Sales were up 10 percent. April stay at home owners orders hit fewer people visited the store. Sales were down 5 percent. The stock is down today um, and, and they just did not. Gasoline sales were down, Dom. The number of visits fell. I mean, when you have their peers like Target and you know, Walmart just hitting it out of the park for the quarter. What happened at Costco? So, so what happened here was an interesting one. First of all, I am by no means the expert on Costco. I am an, an everyday expert at Costco. I'll defer to Courtney for some of the real, real nitty gritty details about it. However, those people at my local Costco know that I'm there three to four times a month. I'm usually there just about every weekend. I buy everything from tires and rims to milk and other goods there. The reason why you have the Costco story so interesting this time around is that because when people did spend at Costco during the last month or so, so they did so on perhaps lower margin items. You're talking about grocery and food <laughs> items as opposed to other things like discretionary items. You don't go there to buy some of the clothing, perhaps, or some of the other goods there. That's a big deal for Costco. And I would also point this out. A lot of times I will say this. I have not been to Costco once since the economic shutdown went into effect. I did go a number of times before the shutdown happened to stockpile, but yeah. since then I haven't been, so maybe that's one of the reasons why as well, Kelly. Courtney, I have to say, same for me. We, we liked to go, but the time that it takes right now, you know, the extra hassle, the lines are crazy. So again, just for comparison, Dollar General uh, same-store sales in the quarter up 22%. Target same-store sales in the quarter up 11%. Walmart up 10%. Costco up 4.8%. That's the first time they've missed the, the expectation in, what, over a decade? Decades plus, I think. Yeah, and exactly, Kelly. And I think it was very interesting because we saw some of perhaps the earliest indications of the stockpiling behavior and the increased traffic from Costco. So I think for whatever reason, maybe it was regionality. And so that was a little different uh, where the stores were located. And so that's when the stockpiling happened earlier, faster. But they were among the first ones to have those long lines and to sort of be telling us monthly about what they were seeing and just 
absolutely sort of out of the park numbers for traffic and for sales. But to your point, to Dom's point, as the shelter in place orders went into effect in much, much of the country, shoppers really pulled back. So traffic fell about 4% worldwide. But when shoppers were there, their transaction size was fairly large, up mm. about 9%. So they went in with a very strong intent to buy. So that conversion was very strong, which is what we've heard from a number of others. But what I find fascinating, Kelly, your point is good about gasoline being down 20% year over year because they sell that too. But if you look at a player like BJ's Wholesale, so Maybe that's a better comparison than a Walmart or a Target. Their comps, even ex-gasoline, up 27 percent. Wow. With gasoline, up 20 percent. Wow. So uh, there are some differences there that are a little hard to account for. Uh, again, store location could actually be playing a bigger part than we're able to really sneak out of these yeah. numbers. We, but, Eric, we need Nutella. we got to get back there. Yeah, tell, uh, <laughs> tell your uh, producer, Paul and Kate, to uh, get that those big yeah. Nutellas that they're usually delivering. But but think about like what Dom said, because I was looking at these numbers, I was surprised why did Costco do so badly. But I think I haven't been to a Costco in a long time, but Target, I've been to a bunch of times. Target, yeah. you get in, you get out those long lines of Costco. Who wants to You see those photos and think, oh, let me get in that long line too. So I think it does suggest a different kind of business model. Costco's not the same as these other businesses. Remember, they also have that membership fee. So as long as they keep getting those membership fees, that's a huge proportion of their profits. True. It's not like members have disappeared. They're going to get back to Costco in the summer when it makes more sense to do that. That's very true. Got to get that, that Nutella among many, many other things. Uh, up next, we may not have football yet, but we do have some football news. The NFL is reviewing its, or renewing its exclusive video game rights with Electronic Arts. They're also easing the rule around media distribution of live games on Sundays. Guys, this is super interesting. So it'll impact mostly Fox and CBS. Uh, on the video game side, shares of EA are down fractionally today, but up 12% for the year. Uh, while on the TV side, the media giants have really struggled. Viacom CBS down 50% since January. Eric, but bottom line, this means you can they can now show... Is it like the all the big games that are happening at once in your market? Or, it's, or? it's They're making it a little bit easier. They're making it a little bit more fan-friendly. So, so take an example. Let's say you live in Dallas, and on one weekend, Fox has the doubleheader. CBS has the singleheader. So you see those three games, but then if the, the Dallas game itself, the local game in your market comes up against the doubleheader, then they usually try not to, they try not to have the other channel with a game against your local team. So the whole idea originally for the NFL was that TV was based on your local market. So if you live in Pittsburgh, we always want you to see that Steelers game without any competition, but they're trying to get to the point where, look, fans, they want to see a lot of other games. They're betting on multiple games. People are moving around the country. They're fans of different teams. Yeah. So they're making it a little bit easier that if your local team is on, they'll say, okay, CBS or Fox, you can show your other game across at the same time that the actual local market team is playing. So that's the TV part. Yeah, and Dom, it seems to me that maybe underpinning this move is the idea of, hey, we really need people to be watching these football games when they do, when they come back, however they come back and however they can. I mean, this is a, a, I mean, it's arguable whether the iron is hot or lukewarm right now. But what you want if you're the NFL is the viewers to come back. It may be a while, perhaps even before fans go in the stands. What you want right now is for people to really just watch your sport. And for that, to me, this is an incremental decision. Development. What I would like to see personally is to have everybody be able to see the market, the games that they want in whatever market they're in. But we're a far cry away from Red that. Zone. Unless, yes, well, you can, <laughs> but just for the scoring ones, right? If you have a situation like direct ticket or something like that, where as a San Francisco 49ers fan living in the New York metro area, I can watch that on a more 
or relative easier basis. I guess that would be a bigger development to me here. But still, the EA Sports thing is interesting only because everyone seems to be playing some kind of version of Madden NFL these days, whatever Apparently, iteration that was. We're going to talk about the jobs boom coming from that uh, later. I know Courtney's big on Red Zone, but we'll save that for another time. Uh, let's talk about the uh, IPO. I mean, this one's shocking to me. European IPO, Pete's Coffee, owned by the same uh, parent of Panera and, and a few others. They're raising $2.5 billion from this IPO today to make it Europe's largest public offering this year and the second largest one globally. And the stock is up 13% and the pricing comes less than a week after bankers started marketing for the deal. Courtney, what does this tell you? You know, I think it tells you that there are certain companies that there just is a market for, Kelly. Even if you just look at the fundamentals of the company, where 80% of this coffee is sort of at-home consumption. I don't mm. know about you, but holy cow, am I drinking a lot more coffee than I normally am. <laughs> I feel like I have a coffee drip. Maybe it's because it's easier because it's just right there around the corner, right? But this is a consumer staples company. And look at the market. Yes, we had some really wild days earlier on, but it seems to be a much uh, tamer atmosphere in the market right now and it does look like investors are looking for some opportunities here so this might have they might have found this sweet spot sort of both in a fundamental terms and where the market's sitting right now yeah. in terms of acceptance for something like this and i think that's a good reminder you know this isn't dom a business that is all hey you're going to stand in line at a coffee shop i mean it's it's mostly the stuff that you're making at home no I, and i can tell you this we've we've bought to courtney's point a lot more coffee these days as many people know my wife is pregnant so she's drinking a lot more decaf i'm drinking <laughs> more regular coffee but we're buying it and it just so happens that i'm a pete's customer i'm a pete's fan Growing up in California, Pete's was a very, very big deal. So the brand resonates also with a very specific part of the market, much like Starbucks does for a lot of uh, coffee drinkers out there. So perhaps with this particular demand out there, it does indicate that if you have a good, strong consumer products brand, yeah. you are still able to command some kind of a premium from investors and, and consumers as well. And just finally on this, Eric, it is interesting. It's not just uh, Pete's coffee. I mean, Warner Music is talking about still going ahead with its IPO. I mean, it. It feels quick, but the mar look, the market's almost back to all-time highs. It's, it's an interesting trade, right? Because obviously in Jan, Feb, you might have done an IPO. All of a sudden, the next couple of months, it looked really bad. So in the same way that we talked to traders during the show about, hey, do you think there's time for the market to drop down in the next few months? Maybe these guys that mm -hmm. want to get an IPO, it's like, we got to get it done right now. We're <laughs> almost close to the all-time highs. This is good enough. Let's do it before we drop 20%. Yeah, true. It does have that feel a little bit hurried right now. Um, finally, before we go today, as employees are beginning to return to their offices, their bosses have some questions for them. They specifically want to know what they're doing over the weekend. The thing is, and this was in the Wall Street Journal, legal experts are saying employers have to be careful not to, inviolate, uh, to violate employee privacy guys because... So here's the, here's the thing. We're taking so many precautions around the office, but Dom... Now everyone's it, it no longer is idle banter to be like, hey, what did you do this week? And it has this almost feel to it like, how close do I want to get to you? What did you do this weekend? This is about as close as I'm going to feel to being a professional athlete with a clause in my contract that says I can't go skydiving or motorcycling or anything else on the weekends. But to this point, I, I mean, I kind of understand if there was a time for employers to have a little bit of latitude with regard to invading somebody's privacy, it would be now. Right. Contact tracing everything else. I guess I wouldn't really. 
it still bothers me about people knowing what I do, but it wouldn't really surprise me if my, my employer wanted to know just a little bit more about maybe who I've been in contact with, the types of things I'm but, doing. I mean, Dom, you said your wife is pregnant. We know you're on the go. I, I don't think there's a lot to learn about the habits of Dom Chu, no. but some other employees <laughs> might feel a little, you know, I mean, you might have a, a wild side life I don't know about. I but, do not. But, the- Corey, you know what I mean? I mean, but if you're someone who you might be going to a bar or restaurant, you know, maybe you don't really want to share that with you. I'm not saying with you should or shouldn't be doing it, but like it does raise a lot of questions about if it's like an ethical thing to do right now. It totally does. I started thinking when I was uh, learning about this topic and trying to figure out how I felt about it. Let's say I went to a family wedding over the weekend where it was a gathering of some people, not a wild party, but hey, I don't know where all those people came from. Is that something that I'm going to need to share with my boss and my colleagues in order to just inform them of my whereabouts? This is a super tricky one. I do not envy HR departments right now across mm-hmm. all of these large corporations because I don't know what the right choice is. Chemi, what do you think? Well, think about how many companies they give you a work-issued phone. They know where those phones go. So if they can tell, okay, there's phones around other phones. There's a lot of density there. We saw that you were moving around. We know exactly where you are. So we don't even have to ask you. Mm. We can just quietly look at our phone data over the weekend and it's our phone it's our work device it's our product so maybe we don't have to ask anything we're going to get a lot of information that's out an of interesting it. point maybe we should be more concerned if they're not asking because they already know right <laughs> uh, thanks everybody appreciate it very much eric chemi courtney reagan and dominic chu that does it for rapid fire today just want to draw your attention to shares of occidental petroleum which are halted right now as the company announces a 10 percent a 10 cent cut to its quarterly dividend that brings it down to just one cent a share so the shares are halted they're set to resume trading at 1.45 p.m. in just a couple of minutes' time. Ahead, the president and Twitter are going head-to-head over controlling content, and now he's threatening to pull the plug on a crucial safety net for social media and others. Details next, and investors are taking note. Twitter shares down for the third day. The Dow up nearly 6% this week. We're back in two. Welcome back. The war of words between the White House and Twitter heating up after Twitter flagged yet another tweet by the president and the White House not pulling any punches after that. Twitter shares have been down throughout this back and forth. They're down another three and a half percent today. Let's check in with Julia Borston for the very latest. Julia. Kelly, President Trump tweeting this morning, revoke 230. He's referring to the part of the Communications Decency Act that protects platforms from being held liable for the content that is shared on their platforms. Then this comes after last night. The president tweeted about the riots in Minneapolis, including saying when looting starts, the shooting starts. Twitter putting a warning label on those tweets and writing, quote, this tweet violated the Twitter rules about glorifying violence. However, Twitter has determined that it may be in the public's interest for the tweet to remain accessible. Twitter also placing a public interest notice on this identical tweet from the White House Twitter handle. Now, this standoff between Trump and Twitter started Tuesday when the social platform applied a fact-checking notice on two of the president's tweets about voter fraud. Yesterday, the president's executive order advocated for a regulatory crackdown on Facebook and Twitter by limiting Section 230 and increasing the oversight of the FTC and the FCC. Now, Facebook also says that repealing or limiting Section 230 will actually restrict more speech online rather than less by actually encouraging platforms to censor anything that might offend anyone. So really a standoff here, not just of Twitter, but also of Facebook 
against the president. Back over to you. Yeah, it would it would go well beyond social media. Well, I guess we think of Pinterest as a social media company, Julia. But anybody who's basically hosting content online uh, falls under this, don't they? Yes, absolutely. But I think what's really interesting is yesterday we saw both Pinterest and Snap shares end dramatically higher. And that's in part because Pinterest and Snap really aren't places for sharing opinions on on political issues, public discourse. Pinterest is usually, you know, and there were some issues at Pinterest around vaccination. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, Pinterest is about sharing recipes, home decor. Snap is private messages, so it doesn't really have those issues. So this really affects Facebook and Twitter and then also YouTube much more so than it would affect a Pinterest and a Snap. Yeah, still, it could be pretty wide ranging uh, depending on what it, the plan really is. Uh, Julia, we appreciate it. Thank you. Julia Borson with the latest there. Coming up, shares of Electronic Arts and Take Two are surging over the past couple months as esports competitions are still taking place while most live sports remain sidelined. That's sparking a surge in revenues and a surge in hiring. We're going to run through the numbers on that next. As we head to break, here's a look at the names leading the Dow for the week, and it's the financials Goldman Sachs. Uh, J.P. Morgan up better than 8%. Raytheon, which is uh, correcting to the downside today, also up still more than 7% on the week. We're back in two. Welcome back. We have some breaking news on the Fed. Let's get to Steve Leisman. What's going on, Steve? Yeah, some new data that you should get used to here, Kelly. The Fed announcing uh, the um, uh, trades that it's made in the ETF space. Remember, it was just uh, this past month or in this month that the Federal Reserve for the first time began buying exchange-traded funds in order to purchase corporate bonds. The top sponsors uh, were BlackRock at $755 million. This is for purchases made from May 12th through the 18th. Uh, Vanguard, $549 million. State Street, 252 down to Deutsche Bank at 13.6. Now, people are probably interested in the funds that they bought. The LQD was the number one fund According to my research, at 395 VCIT, that's a Vanguard fund. These are all uh, corporate bond funds of some sort, uh, usually intermediate bond funds. 278, uh, DCSH 271, and HYG 116. Kelly, I don't know about a strategy of getting out in front of these. This is uh, data is a little bit old. They're continuing to buy it, uh, but maybe some of your uh, market experts can tell us whether or not you want to play this Fed trade of where the Fed is buying these particular corporate bonds. Yeah, I will uh, speak to one of them in just a few minutes, Steve. Thanks. It's still so strange to see those lists of ETFs. Uh, That's our Steve Leeson with the latest on the Fed purchases there. Uh, Meantime, the pandemic may have sidelined traditional sports, but there's one sport uniquely equipped for no-contact competitions and social distancing even before the outbreak. That, of course, is eSports. Josh Lipton joins us now with more on the hiring boom this is creating. Josh? That's right, Kelly. Listen, I know this sounds crazy to some of our viewers, but people, especially young people, really do enjoy watching other people play video games. This year, the esports industry, Kelly, is expected to generate revenue of $1.1 billion. That's a jump of 11%. The audience will reach, get this, $495 million. That's a jump of 12%, according to NewZoo. And the industry, as you mentioned, continues hiring, too. Job postings are 30% higher than the same period last year. EA, Twitch, and Activision have all been steadily hiring, according to Zip Recruiter. We spoke with one recent hire, Erica Kress, who accepted a job with esports company Vindex in April. We've been able to really make that shift pretty seamlessly from a focus on live events to more broadcast and streams. And we've worked with many of our great partners like Twitch, some of our Overwatch teams, um, as well as some of our Call of Duty teams to produce some really great content. 
Now, Erica's boss at Vindex is Mike Sepso, an industry veteran. He says there are potential headwinds for esports, including a challenge ad market. But he says if those marketers really do want to reach that younger demographic, then esports, in his, his opinion, does remain a smart bet in the quarters ahead. Kelly, back to you. And I just am glad there's one place expanding and hiring. Uh, Josh, thanks so much. Josh Lipton for us today. Still ahead, the S&P 500 is on pace for its second straight monthly gain, and it's not the only index picking up steam. We're going to look at some of the laggards that are trying to play catch-up and whether you should jump in next. We're also awaiting the president's holding a news conference at the top of the hour. He's expected to speak about China. It could be a big market mover. There you can see the preparations well underway. Stay with us. We'll have much more here on The Exchange. Welcome back. The market's lower today because although the Nasdaq was trying to uh, turn positive, but more importantly, we're on track for a second straight positive week. There's a stealth rally underway as well. The small caps and the transports are closing the massive gap, not only with the S&P 500, but even with the Nasdaq and the FANG stocks. Joining me now to discuss that is John Spallanzani, the portfolio manager at Miller Value Partners. John, it's great to have you here. And I mean, people are getting concerned about getting into the market at all right now because they think, oh, we're going to go through a June swoon and these other things. Why would you not only recommend getting into stocks, but into these parts of the market that tend to be more sensitive to pullbacks? Well, we're not really market timers. So I think that uh, right now uh, we've had a nice rally, obviously off the low, about 42 percent. So uh, we saw a big uh, divergence between the Nasdaq, which is a 5 percent year to date, and the small caps, which had lagged quite a bit, as well as the mid caps. So those stocks are actually being helped by a lot of these Fed programs uh, that Steve just mentioned. So uh, the debt that, that the Fed is buying, and if you listen to uh, Chairman Powell today, he said that even though they're buying a lot, most of the buying that they're doing hasn't even begun yet. So they still have a lot of firepower left, and we're seeing these big, drastic moves, not to mention the central bank's around the world who are also uh, increasing their money supply, China, uh, Japan, obviously the EU, uh, Lagarde. So all those things are positive, And a lot of that money, obviously, is flowing to the big cap fang names, but it also trickle down, right? Yeah. You're trickling down to small caps, mid caps. And those stocks are catching up. And they've actually catched up quite a bit. So actually, off the low in March, uh, the small caps have actually matched what the uh, larger caps have done. And the, those indexes are also uh, very heavily weighted towards financials. There's going to be a, a big Russell rebalance in June, but there's a lot of uh, stocks that are heavy into the financials. A lot of things, something that nobody's really talking about is this $6 trillion that the Fed uh, and, the, and, and also the government are pumping in, that money, there's a, there's a big on that money. So the banks are going to get servicing fees for yeah. that money, right? Yeah. So whether you call it zero to 1%, that's a big amount of money in $6 trillion. That's Interesting. going right to the right to the bank's bottom line. And obviously, it's going to be what they're trying to do with the Main Street lending program is go to those small and regional banks, which actually have a big weight in the Russell. So uh, yeah. that's really positive. And I think things are going in the right direction. Obviously, Trump could change all this in, in five minutes at his news conference with China and Hong Kong. But I think that, again, people are in it for the long term. Uh, I think the pain trade is still higher. You know, this is most hated rally off the bottom. Uh, Mike Gorda said it yesterday on your program mm -hmm. for a long time. So uh, things are looking better. The fact that there's 68 percent of the people who are unemployed are making more unemployed. 
the credit card data that Jamie Dimon talked about and also Brian Moynihan talked about, uh, we're seeing big upticks in that as well as the Google mobility tracker. So all those things are very positive going forward, yeah. not to mention the heat wave that's coming next week that's going to force everybody to get out, do some planting. I went to Home Depot this weekend. I was online for, you know, almost a half hour mm -hmm. waiting to get shrubs and bushes and that kind of thing. So people are, they're nesting a little bit. They want to go out. I think what they're going to do is they're going to go to those places where they feel the most safe. Yeah, So absolutely. the places that are the cleanest, the Got places you. that have the best PPE yeah. uh, are going to be the ones that benefit going forward. We got to hop. I think, well, no, we got to hop. You got eight seconds till the prez, John. I let you go right up to there. And I got to say, oh, Bill Miller, he came on. He basically nailed the bottom. So you guys are still long. That's the main takeaway. John Spallanzani, thank you, sir. Good to see you. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.